I have been presenting lectures at Columbia now since, I think, 1971. I can think of no occasion that gives me greater pleasure than this one in presenting to you Mr. Paul Christeller. Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and students, I wish to thank our hosts for inviting me to address you on a topic that has been of great interest to me and I hope it fits into your program. Yeah. The problems about which I'm going to talk have occupied and worried me for most of my scholarly life, which now extends over more than half a century. I've been concerned with the study of philosophical texts from Greek and Roman antiquity, published a number of unpublished or poorly edited, printed philosophical and other texts of the Renaissance, and also of the later Middle Ages, most of them in Latin and a few in Italian, and have supervised and edited many similar text editions prepared by students or younger colleagues. I also conducted for many years here at Columbia, and more recently once at the Folger Library, a doctoral seminar on techniques of research in medieval and Renaissance philosophy, at first jointly with my late friend Ernest Moody, and later alone, which covered along with other topics such as bibliography, paleography, and manuscript research, also some of the basic problems of editing and of textual criticism. In my distant days, as a student in Germany, I studied mainly philosophy and its history, but also classical philology and medieval history, where textual criticism was considered part of our training. When I later became involved with the study of philosophical and other texts of the Middle Ages and of the Renaissance, I had to face from the beginning and ever afterwards the question whether and to what extent the methods of textual criticism as developed by classical scholars and to a lesser extent by medieval historians may be applied to the editing of these later texts. And I like to say for explanation that the Lachmann method is just a catchword for the standard method of textual criticism that has been practiced by classical scholars for the last 150 years or so. I have always felt rather isolated in this enterprise, in spite of the help and encouragement I received from many younger friends and students. For the field of medieval and early modern Latin has been a thinly populated no man's land, despised alike, though for different reasons, by classical scholars and by historians of the modern vernacular literatures. And few people seem to realize that the Neo-Latin language up to the 18th century was a strong competitor of the vernacular in the literature of the various European countries that had, in fact, a bilingual culture, a topic on which I expanded in the case of Italy in a recent different lecture, and that in philosophy, in the sciences, and in the other branches of learning, Latin ruled supreme during the same period. I think 
most of the learned literature up to 1800 was written and published in Latin for an international audience rather than in the vernaculars. In recent years, the knowledge of Latin has greatly declined among students and younger scholars, and also the concern for texts has become less popular with the rise of neo-romantic and radical attitudes and of various literary and intellectual fads that are fundamentally opposed to reason, to history, and to scholarship. I am pleased to note the textual and other scholarly problems again receive wide and diverse attention from younger scholars. And I greatly welcome the opportunity to explain to you some of the problems I have encountered in my own field and experience. And I hope there will be at least an informal discussion in which some of my views may be corrected or supplemented by the different experiences of scholars with different interests and experiences. The Lachman method, which will serve as the focus of this paper, is the standard method of textual criticism formulated by Karl Lachmann in the early 19th century and consistently applied to the editing of classical Greek and Latin texts by Lachmann himself and by many other scholars in Germany and elsewhere for most of the 19th century and a good part of the present one. By the late 19th century, classical scholars began to update and revise the method, but they have never completely abandoned it, whereas students of medieval and modern literature have often criticized it or even rejected or ignored it completely. My own position, due to my training and experience, is somewhat intermediary, and I shall try to show, as briefly as I can, in the light of my own experience, that the method, at least in my field, is basically sound, but requires a number of important and very specific modifications. It is necessary to remind ourselves that textual criticism was not invented by Lachmann or by his generation of German scholars. Any attentive reader who corrects the misprints of a book or article and any proofreader is practicing textual criticism, even though he may be unaware of it, or at least unfamiliar with the developed methods and techniques of it. Can you hear me also in the later, in the back? Should, uh, or should I raise my voice? It's all right? Any editor who mediates between the author and the reader and tries to prepare a text that is accurate and makes sense we want both, don't we? It should be accurate and make sense. It's practicing textual criticism, whether he knows it or not. And he will do a better job if he does know it. <laughs> For there is a tested technique, and it has had a long and respectable history. It was developed and practiced by the Alexandrian grammarians in their editions of the Greek classical authors and by more modest grammarians of late antiquity in the editions of the classical Roman authors. We know a good deal about the textual criticism done by ancient Greek and Roman grammarians. 
being copyists, were on the whole reasonably accurate, but with few exceptions, not critical. And it was a great merit of the Renaissance humanists and philologists, first in Italy, then in France and the Low Countries, to have revived and developed the skills of textual criticism, both in collating several and especially older manuscripts for the same texts and in applying conjectural criticism to Greek and Latin classical texts, subsequently to the Bible and the Church Fathers and to the texts of the Roman law. The last two tasks, of course, of far greater practical importance than the criticism applied to Greek and Roman classical literature. In the 17th and 18th century, the leading Dutch scholars collated large numbers of classical manuscripts and recorded their variants. And their collations have remained the basis for many text editions down to recent times. I heard confidentially from active classical scholars, especially in Latin, that when they edit a text from older manuscripts, the latest reliable collations of these manuscripts were done by Dutch scholars in the 17th century. Nicolaus Heinzius still reigns supreme, and I'm going, if I have time, I'm going to tell an amusing story illustrating that. During the same period, students of history such as Mabillon and his successors in France, Muratori in Italy, 18th century and others, developed similar techniques in editing historical documents and chronicles from the Middle Ages and early modern times. They were followed in the 19th century by the editors of the Monumenta Germania Historica in Germany and by those of similar collections in other countries, including France and England. As compared with these earlier practices, the Lachmann method made several novel contributions. Earlier scholars had collated many different manuscripts of the same text and selected in each instance the variant reading that they found preferable and that seemed to have the largest manuscript support. They counted the manuscripts. Lachmann's crucial change was the separation of two phases in the preparation of the critical text, known as recensio and emendatio. And I have to explain the word emendatio in this sense is not identical with emendation. Emendation is only a part of it. Before establishing his text, the uh, scholar of the Lachmann school subjected all variant readings obtained through collation to a critical analysis and attempted to establish through a calculus of common and individual errors the different groups of families of manuscripts into which the tradition was divided and the place with each manuscript occupied within the family to which it belonged. Summing up his analysis with a so-called stemma, family tree of the manuscripts that derived all extant manuscripts and families from a single archetype. This is crucial. Um, 
and it's notable that the common uh, the common character of manuscripts and their groupings are derived from the errors not from the correct readings it is assumed that the error discloses the common ancestry of the text this procedure allowed Lachmann to eliminate from consideration all manuscripts copied from extant manuscripts which he called eliminatio codicum descriptorum we eliminate the manuscripts that are copied from other manuscripts we have we don't need them anymore because we have the source from which they were covered or copied and to evaluate both individual manuscripts and entire families in inverse proportion to the number and gravity of their errors the more errors the poorer the respective manuscript or the family to which it belongs some skeptics including some of my students have objected that there may be a difference of opinion as to what constitutes an error say well you can argue how can you say this is an erroneous reading maybe it's right it's all subjective I'm inclined to reply that many errors are obvious that the method works if we focus our attention on the obvious errors and forget about those other variants that may be considered as reasonable alternatives I used even such a technical method as working on my text with a blue and red pencil and I used a different color for those dubious variants that after all may have a limited claim to being valid and another color for those areas which were beyond any doubt erroneous if you single out the obvious errors then you are unlikely to face uh, to uh, to err and um, this is a general criterion which I should often meet nowadays people think they're very clever if they are skeptical and they say no there are no valid methods of investigation because my opinion is as good as yours and what you consider true I consider false and vice versa and I admit there are lots of controversial problems where there is room for debate but I think it is highly uncritical to deny that there are some very elementary criteria for establishing whether this or that is wrong and we start from that we try to expand it we do not claim absolute certainty for things that are not certain but to refuse to claim certainty for things that deserve to be certain is as uncritical as to believe everything once this recantio which we might say well the how should we translate that the, it is an um, examination a comprehensive examination of the manuscript tradition the recantio once it has been completed the editor may proceed to the second phase emendatio and establishes critical text he makes the text that's a great powerful and interesting fact we make the text we establish it 
after we have examined the tradition. Selecting the variants on the basis of the breadth and quality rather than of the sheer quantity of their manuscript support. Um, this is important. For example, great as the older scholars of the Dutch school were, they limited themselves to counting the, the variant readings. They would say this reading is supported by 20 manuscripts and the other one by 10, and they would not ask what was the characteristic of these 20 and 10 manuscripts. The Lachman school changed that. If by the Lachman method we find out that let's say 25 manuscripts belong to a single family and five to a different family, then the weight of the variants supported by those five manuscripts may equal or outweigh the 25. It's no longer quantitative. That is one of the crucial changes and, in my opinion, improvements of the Lachman method. And I'm afraid in some modern fields where the Lachman method is rejected or ignored, it leads to a relapse into the pre-Lachman method of counting the manuscript witnesses without asking how good they are. According to the Lachman method, um, let us say a variant has a better support if it is found in the best manuscripts of each family, two or three. And if the poorer members of all families vote against it, they are outvoted by strength and not by number. You follow me? This is a very crucial point, not sufficiently appreciated by people other than classical scholars. <laughs> Moreover, the, uh, the critical editor will limit his conjectural criticism, that is, uh, out of his opinion, he corrects the text, he says everything, this cannot be true. Oh, it's great fun to, to amend a text against the manuscript <laughs> tradition. Uh, but he tries to limit it to cases where the consensus of all manuscripts and hence their archetype offer a corrupt text that is in need of correction. And it's like, well, it is like uh, medicine. Uh, my wife is a physician and will not mind my using this comparison. We have to di divide diagnosis and therapy. Also in textual criticism, the first step is diagnosis. We realize something is wrong in these words or this sentence or this line as report. That's the first step. And then we have to think, how can it be treated? And how can the sick words be submitted to surgery and replaced by better, by better substitutes? And of course, where the scholar, the editor, succeeds in doing that, that is the triumph of the method, also a great personal satisfaction. The editor will tend, in case of doubt, to prefer the more unusual to the more common or trivial reading. This is the rule of the Lectio Difficilior. The more difficult reading, in case it makes any sense at all, uh, has a better claim 
to being right than the more trivial one. It is an effective tool, uh, I suppose it. Uh, he will balance the criteria, these are wonderful slogans, recta ratio and usus auctoris have to be balanced. That is, the right reason, that is, the uh, reading must make sense, but we also have to watch the usage of the particular author, usus auctoris, implication being that the practical usage of the author may not always be in agreement with good sense. For example, people were inclined to correct a word or a sentence because it did not correspond to the standard rules of classical Latin grammar or spelling. Now, in the authors of my period, this method is rejected because if we have evidence of autograph manuscripts of our author where he does not comply with what we, by classical standards, we would consider correct, the usus auctoris prevails. It is not our job, although some people have tried to do that, it's not our job to correct an author. Our job is to correct his copyists perhaps our previous editors, uh, the editors preceding us, but not the author. If the author makes mistakes, we have to accept them. And this is the way how us the usage of the author balances the criterion of what we consider reasonable or correct. I suppose if we can prove the use of the author to be irregular, we have to go by that. In case of doubt, the criterion of usage prevails over the criterion of abstract correctness. In other words, we go, we, we base ourselves on the consistent usage of grammar style and thought of the particular author we deal with, if we can ascertain it. And we must keep in mind the major types of scribal errors, uh, such as repetition, omission, transposition, and substitution of words. Very common. I mean, if you watch what we do, if we have to transcribe, we still have to transcribe a few things in spite of Xeroxing. If you watch uh, our transcriptions and recollate them afterwards, which I always advise to do, never rely on your first transcription, you will notice that this is the type of error that happens to any person who uh, copies, especially in a hurry. You skip words, you repeat words, you substitute phrases, usually synonymous phrases. Uh, everyone who copies has to test his memory. That is, do you firmly retain while copying a unit of two words or three or five uh, you have to test yourself. There are some people who make no mistakes in taking down five words at a time. Others arrive only at three or even two. A person whose memory grasp is limited to two or three words 
is likely to make this kind of mistake when he tries to copy five at a time. Now, I caught myself many times in unconsciously and unintentionally substituting a synonymous word for the one I intend to copy. Now, this is exactly what our predecessors, the copyists of the manuscript age, did and what we as editors have to watch for when we critically examine their text. Now, repetitions are easily discovered and remedied. Omissions are terrible, because if you don't have a more complete manuscript, you may be reduced to inserting dots, because how can you fill a gap in the text unless you have another source that fills it? Interpolation also happens very often. We use brackets, I suppose. We copy a text and add a comment on our own. We should use brackets. But if we don't, our comments will enter the text. And this happens very often. And I have found many instances where, for example, a marginal gloss in a copy based on that manuscript entered the body of the text and was no longer visible as a gloss. And then also the misreading of letters, words, and abbreviations in an earlier model. For example, uh, we can make very good emendations when a word makes no sense. We realize the shape of a letter in a certain type of script which was probably copied by our copyist. Or also abbreviations. It is a very simple and very they say elegant emendation. If you have in your, I did it this week in going over the uh, 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 manuscript of a very excellent scholar who submitted a photo from which she worked, excellent work. But in one case, I think it fits, uh, I read the text as copied and it had qui, which is a relative pronoun. Who, he, who. It made no sense. And I looked at the manuscript. There was an abbreviation which suggested that the manuscript had queen, which in this particular sense means uh, or rather. And this very slight change transformed nonsense into sense. And therefore, I think, ought to be accepted. But it is, um, it's very easy. The manuscript looks like this. This is signed for qui. And this stands for the end. In other words, if you change word and you move within a slight difference of abbreviated signs, the emendation is very easy. You have to deal really with only one letter that is written out. All the rest are abbreviation signs. In other words, a textual critic who knows these tricks uh, may uh, be luckier in correcting the text and catching what was originally intended. The editor will record in his apparatus all essential variants, making it as possible for his critical reader to recognize, criticize, and even reverse his decisions. If the apparatus is accurate, we as critical readers 
can collate it and say, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Axe chose this variant, I would rather choose this one, on the very basis of the evidence applied by him. That is one of the useful functions of a critical edition, that the important variants don't fall by the wayside, but are recorded, and therefore can be restored if there are good reasons. He, the editor will not hesitate to correct the archetype, but never venture to correct the author. The author is entitled to his mistakes. He has the unalienable right and freedom to make what by our standards are mistakes. And he will constantly apply his knowledge of author subject, style, and language, and his common sense, to supplement and occasionally to overrule the merely mechanical and statistical aspects of the method he follows. Common sense, very important, should never be abdicated in any scholarly enterprise, be diffident of anybody who discards or ignores common sense. He is not a first-rate scholar. This method has its obvious merits, and it is recommended by its clarity and simplicity. It works best in the case of those authors who are preserved by a small number of authoritative manuscripts, which permit us to disregard all other manuscripts. This is the case for a number of classical Greek texts and for such Latin texts as Lucretius. Lucretius survived only in two or three Carolingian manuscripts. All other manuscripts are 15th century copies from these identifiable 9th century manuscripts. Most of them can be dismissed as codices descripti. And then we are confronted with only two or three manuscripts, which makes this method Competitively easy, easy in terms of quantity, of course difficult in terms of judgment if there are differences between these three manuscripts. But at least the material to be handled is comparably limited, and it's, as it were, an ideal case for the application of this method. And I think it is no coincidence that Lachmann's edition of Lucretius provides one of the chief models of his methods. He obviously started from there. He may have made the mistake of thinking that it was applicable to other authors whose textual tradition was not as simple as that of Lucretius. The method has been far less successful in many other cases, especially of those Latin authors who had a continuous, rich, and complicated textual tradition for example, Virgil or Ovid. Here the modern editors often claim to follow only the best out of a large number of manuscripts. I remember in my youth a standard Teubner edition of, uh, and also an Oxford edition, 
had on the title page uh, the work of Virgil or so at optimorum codicum fidem edited edited on the testimony of the best manuscripts who decided what the best manuscripts were that's the problem when you examine it closely it usually turned out that the best manuscripts were merely either the oldest the earliest manuscripts well they have something to be said in their favor but even worse manuscripts that have been best known to scholars for several centuries by coincidence almost all preserved in Paris in the Vatican uh, well sometimes in Oxford of course in Florence and in Venice these are the manuscripts accessible that have been accessible to scholars for centuries and people were so convinced that they didn't bother manuscripts that were in less famous collections or had not yet been examined in recent decades we have learned thanks to the greater facilities for traveling and the progress and photographing I might say and the progress of paleography that many of the best manuscripts that form the basis of our editions were badly collated in the past and yield different readings when recollated I have uh, several stories that are embarrassing I don't mind hearing them from my friends for example uh, the uh, um, one of the chief foundations of the text of the Latin poet Terence is spelt with one R uh, is uh, uh, a manuscript a famous manuscript in the Vatican called the Codex Bambinos because it once belonged to Pietro Bembo and that has been known for centuries and is known to be old and it has old corrections scholars in the late 19th century published all the variant readings of this manuscript and made a big fuss about them a friend of mine says to Prater not so long ago published a facsimile edition of the Codex Bambinus and it appeared for all to see that it did not contain many of the readings credited to it by most respectable scholars of the late 19th century this does happen in other case even worse the uh, the great uh, the German scholar deals made uh, organized a big corpus of editions of Greek commentaries on Aristotle including Simplicius a late ancient Greek commentator on Aristotle uh, this text is I mean you might debate whether we want to know every line of a Neoplatonic commentator on Aristotle I think it matters but for many people it doesn't but what should meet me what should matter for everybody is that this text of Simplicius is our chief source 
for most of the original fragments of the pre-Socratic philosophers, including Parmenides and others. They all are based on Simplicius. My friend and colleague Leonardo Taran is, has good reasons to believe that the standard edition of deals based on a collation made in Florence by another scholar, not by Diels himself, is full of mistakes as far as the readings are concerned. In other words, it has to be recollated. And God knows what that may imply for the interpretation of the often obscure uh, fragments of the pre-Socratic philosophers. And the continuing progress in the cataloging of manuscript collections, which we have been witnessing in recent decades, brings forth many manuscripts previously unknown and unused that must at least be recorded and examined, if not collated, before they can be dismissed as unimportant. I always like to see that, oh, when uh, something has not been examined and is brought to the attention, somebody says, oh, let's forget about it. It won't be of any importance. I call this, in scholarship, the voice of the devil. Um, how can you declare something to be unimportant before you have examined it? You may say so afterwards, but not beforehand. I like to tell, I hope my time permits me to tell another story, one of my favorite stories. And it uh, involves a friend and former colleague, John Richards, who taught Latin here. He did a critical edition of a Greek text of Theophrastus, a good edition. In the preface, I read the preface, I sometimes read prefaces. Uh, the, uh, he says in the preface, this text is known only from four manuscripts, all in the Vatican. A fifth manuscript claimed to have been seen by Nicolaus Heinzius in Heidelberg must be considered as fictitious according to what Sir John Holt said in the preface to his Loeb edition of the text. Well, I was offended by uh, this treatment of Nicolaus Heinzius who in my opinion knew more about manuscripts than most 19th and 20th century scholars taken together. I said, if Nicolaus Heinzius claims to have seen the manuscript in Heidelberg, let us check whether it is perhaps among the manuscripts that were taken from Heidelberg to the Vatican around 1630. The Palatini Greci. I immediately found that there was a printed catalog of the Vatican Greek manuscripts from Heidelberg, second, that we had that printed catalog. Colombia has an excellent collection of manuscript catalogs, one of the most complete and most accessible in this country. I can't resist claiming some merit for it 
which, which I share with my very distinguished predecessor, Lynn Thorndike, and with my young successor, Robert Somerville. Well, I went over to Columbia to, to Butler, where I bought, found the book, and within five minutes I found the manuscript used by Heinzius. I told my friend Richards, you owe a palinodee to Heinzius after this. The manuscript was not fictitious, but it was accident and exactly where it ought to have been. Now he did follow up and he learned also his lesson because he said, well, it means that the editors of these texts have not kept track with manuscripts catalogued in recent decades. They always keep citing the manuscripts that had been known for centuries. So he went through all catalogues of Greek manuscripts and told me afterwards that he found 15 more manuscripts <laughs> containing this text. It's not only an amusing, but I think also instructive story. Also, the conjectures credited to modern editors and their friends. I used to say, even when I was much, uh, much younger, I used to say when I look at the apparatus of Teubner editions, the conjectures are mostly due to the author or his friends. This practice has prevailed for over a century, but it has been found that in many cases the same conjectures were made by Italian scholars in the 15th and by Dutch scholars in the 17th century who did not receive credit for it. I, a young colleague named Sweeney who got his doctorate at Harvard on Statius proved this, that some of the standard conjectures found in modern texts of Statius and credited to uh, 20th century German and English scholars are in fact found in Italian and Dutch editions of the text from earlier centuries. The fact that the Lachmann method has been poorly applied in many instances is not as important as the way it has been openly revised even within the tradition of classical scholarship. The discovery of classical texts in papyri that are centuries older than the earliest extant manuscripts has led especially Greek scholars to admit that there is a long textual history between the time of the author and that of the archetype of the extant manuscripts. And this modification is reflected in the basically Lachmannian manual of textual criticism by Paul Maas, published also in English. He happened to be one of my teachers ages ago. The earlier prejudice against later manuscripts in favor of the earliest manuscripts was gradually overcome. And Giorgio Pasquale, a late friend of mine, in his classical book on textual criticism, proclaims the maxim ever repeated since, since the 1930s, recentiores non deteriores, meaning more recent manuscripts are not necessarily worse manuscripts. A major principle, very heretical, in front of the standard Lachman method. More extensive collating has led to the uncomfortable conclusion 
But there are many so-called contaminated manuscripts that borrow variants from different families of manuscripts and hence cannot be assigned to a single family. This has led, in the case of texts with very rich and complex manuscript tradition, to complicated statistics of variants and has undermined faith in a simple stemma. Stemma always derives group of manuscripts from a single source and then those from an ultimate single source. But if the manuscripts have cross variants borrowed from other branches of the family, it becomes difficult to give a stemma. I myself a bit skeptical about carrying out a stemma in all cases. And I must say many of the classical uh, of the they save time and labor, but uh, you have no evidence that they are literally correct in all details. That's all right, as long as we know what we are doing. Understandably, computers have been used to classify and group the variant readings in such a complex tradition, and this is certainly desirable. Yet the often heard claim that the computer can collate manuscripts is deceptive, or at least premature. Whenever I asked how a computer can collate, and I asked not only American but also French scholars who are equally enthusiastic when it comes to computer methods, and I asked them how a computer can collate a manuscript, I received the answer that the manuscript in question must first be transcribed in a special way and on a special kind of paper before the computer can collate it. And one must be a very faithful believer in the computer cult to overlook the simple fact that the real condition is contained in this transcription that precedes the computer. And if errors are committed in this transcription, the computer will repeat them. I must say, however, one thing. If you do this collating for several manuscripts, each one on special paper, then the computer can compare them with each other and put together the, uh, uh, the uh, variant groups faster and cl more clearly than we would my normal procedure. But the first uh, very sizable part of the collation itself has to be done by hand and eye before the computer even gets into the picture. But I think I came across that with computers all over. I mean, there is a kind of cult uh, partly due to the propaganda made by the industry that produces computers enforced by the large number of our public that just has a will to believe in everything that is new, even beyond the legitimate claims. Uh, I'm very glad to admit that we benefit a lot from this, but there's no reason to claim for it more than it can do. Computers apart. And the task of the critical editor has been greatly complicated by the need for fresh collations and by the increased number of manuscripts to be collated, as we have seen. Moreover, new methods of manuscript research have been developed 
tend to treat each manuscript not merely as a statistical unit for variance, but as a concrete and individual book which has a unique physiognomy to which the other texts contained in it belong, and a personal history, as it were, that extends from its copyist and first owner through all later owners, collectors, librarians, and scholars who had access to it down to its current location in some institutional or private, accessible or inaccessible, well or badly cataloged library. I like to credit this method to the late Cardinal Mercotti and to Augusto Campana and a few other uh, scholars of their school. And I like to take credit myself for a paleographical rule, which I formulated several times, that you, the ultimate provenance of a miscellaneous manuscript may be determined on the basis of the rarest texts that it contains. Most scholars to whom I spoke about it agree. It is one lead for determining the historical location of a particular manuscript. If the Lachman method has thus encountered serious problems even within the area of classical scholarship, we should not be surprised to find that it faces even greater and more serious problems when applied to medieval or Renaissance and modern texts. For this later period, we have to cope with types of manuscripts that simply do not exist for the classical scholar. We have autographed manuscripts or drafts, manuscripts corrected by the author, dedication copies, copies owned by the author's friends, and after the mid-15th century, we have printed editions, proofread or corrected by the author. We have different redactions of the same work by the same author. And we have different redactions of the same work by different authors. We have the fluctuating text of oral performances recorded in writing by different copyists, such as university lectures and disputations, speeches, lyrical, epical, and theatrical compositions, mostly in the vernacular languages. We have to cope with entirely new genres of literary composition that follow different rules from those of classical literature. For example, the whole problem, a problem of autographs and of authors' redactions basically does not exist for classical literature. They will deal with the standard text fixed in antiquity. And uh, authors' variants don't exist, whereas for medieval and renaissance and modern texts, this is a constant problem that I had to deal with it. Also when I edited Piccino, there were a number of authors' variants to be considered. It requires entirely new editorial and methodological principles and tricks. We finally have to cope with different languages. Even in the case of Neolatin, that differs from classical Latin in vocabulary, syntax, prosody, and style, though rarely in grammar. And with the vernacular languages that in the period in which I'm concerned are still fluid and unregulated in their vowels and suffixes and spelling, punctuation, word division, syntax, 
and even grammar. The varying dialect habits of authors and copyists. Some Italian text, an enormous problem. Uh, editors in the last century made the task easy by what they called normalizing. They transferred the text as they found it in the manuscripts uh, into what they considered standard Tuscan usage of the 16th century and later. This is a kind of falsification, and I think that uh, we, we cannot use these editions anymore. C'est tout à refaire. All this is hard and sometimes impossible to handle with the Lachmann method. And a basic alternative has been offered to it in the form of the diplomatic, that is, literal transcription of a single manuscript source. This has been advocated especially by French. This procedure is obviously indicated when we have a unique manuscript source or an original document or an autograph or corrected manuscript from which all extant copies are derived. In these cases, we can disregard the derivative copies and just give the text as it with errors. In, in this case, I would favor putting even corrections into the footnote the apparatus, not correct in the text, because the text with all its errors may be the author's text. We all make mistakes in writing, grammatical mistakes. There are exceptions, even in these cases, for also here, there may be errors of the copyist or slips of the pen of the author. It should be corrected by the editor, at least in the apparatus. I know the case of an edition based on the author's autograph, which is still inadequate because the editor ignores a number of author's editions found in other manuscripts. He did not recognize that the autograph he used represented an early adaptation of the work, and that other manuscripts which were not autographed contained authentic editions made by the author. It makes the edition effective because the later editions do not clearly or not at all appear even in the apparatus, whereas the proper thing would be to give them in the text with brackets. In the case, in other words, the use of an autograph is not always a cure-all for textual problems. In the case of different redactions, whether by the same author or by several authors, it is obviously a mistake to conflate them. And the variants of different redactions should be separately recorded in a separate apparatus or in parallel columns or in appendices. They should not get mixed up with copyists' errors. And it is, in my opinion, a mistake to follow only one manuscript where the same redaction is found in several independent manuscripts. I mean, also in the case of medieval variant redactions, at least for each redaction, the Lachman method functions if properly applied. It is quite sound to edit a single reduction from all manuscripts containing it, according to the Lachman method, and minor scribal errors should be corrected, not only from the manuscripts of the same reduction, but also from other redactions that contain the same passage. 
In the case of single reductions that appear in a very large and unmanageable number of manuscripts, we may be forced to give up the ideal solution of a critical edition. I don't ask anybody. I have been confronted with this problem in text series that I'm involved in. You have certain texts, not only 20 manuscripts, but 100 or 150. Do you impose on your poor collaborator the task of collating from top to bottom 150 manuscripts, especially if the text is of reasonable length? We may have to compromise, at least for the time being, collating a small number of judiciously selected manuscripts and making but a brief sampling of the other manuscripts, just sufficient to determine their family and their individual quality. In the selection of the best manuscripts, priority should be given to manuscripts that demonstrably originate with the author or with his circle of friends. And this can very often be established. Autographs are still better. Dedication copies are good, but often contain mistakes not correct by the author. Sorry to say. As we move down beyond the 15th and 16th century, the manuscript copy gradually disappears, except for university lectures, clandestine and occult literature, and other special types of writing. For these types, we still have 18th century manuscripts. The tradition rests more and more on autographs and on printed editions contemporary with the author. For a long time, the assumption was held by most scholars, including myself, that all different copies of the same printed edition contain the same text. It was also assumed on fairly good evidence that the first edition of a text, especially when supervised by the author, contained the most correct text, and that all later editions, whether reissued or newly printed, differed from it only by printer's errors, except for editions demonstrably revised by the author himself. And I have seen a lot of cases where this is so. Therefore, it seems sufficient to collate only one copy of the first edition of a text. This comfortable belief has been shattered by recent experiences. Beginning with Shakespeare and a few other writers, it was discovered that different copies of the same edition may contain variant readings. And gradually, many scholars have come to believe that each printed copy has a different text from each other copy and must be separately collated. It horrifies me if I would have to apply this. Most instances have been recorded for English texts after the 16th century. But apparently there are a few similar instances concerning Latin texts of the 16th century. We certainly have to accept the evidence when presented disturbing and uncomfortable as it may be. Yet the task of collating every single copy of an edition is formidable, even in the case of Shakespeare, and hardly feasible when it involves less important authors. I may be incorrigibly old-fashioned, but I still tend to think that the variants involved are mostly orthographical or minor, 
and that the variant readings are not found in individual copies, but rather in families of copies, so that it will be sufficient to collate one copy of each family and to determine by sampling to which family each other copy belongs. But I must leave this problem and its solution to these specialists of English and other modern literatures and cheerfully assert that it rarely or never occurs in Latin texts of the Middle Ages <laughs> or Renaissance with which I have been concerned. What does occur is the continuing revision of a text on the part of the editors of later reprints. But this is of interest only for the influence and not for the original text of the author. It strengthens the importance of the first edition when it comes to establish the original text of an author contemporary with that edition. In the case of Ficino's Plato, for example, the first edition was proofread by him and it had many errors which he listed in an appendix. The second edition was not proofread but praised by him and it consisted mainly of insertion of the errata in the main text. Real errors not corrected continue. We come to reprints in the 16th century, my friend uh, James Hankins, in his recent excellent dissertation, has proven that the text was revised two decades after Ficino's death by several northern scholars, especially Simon Grineus, who was active about 1530. He uh, corrected the text. And nobody has yet fully explored the extent and significance of these corrections. Summing up my remarks, I should like to draw the following conclusions. The Lachman method, when first formulated in the early 19th century, marked a great and decisive progress over earlier methods of textual criticism. It was essentially successful in the treatment of Greek and Latin classical authors, and in other authors that had a comparable manuscript of printed tradition. The principles involved in his method are basically sound, and should never be lost sight of, and should be maintained, although with significant modifications that depend on the nature and condition of the texts and on the facts and circumstances of their manuscript tradition. The method must be modified even for classical texts when their tradition is rich and continuous, and when we are confronted with numerous and especially with contaminated manuscripts. It requires even more modifications for non-classical texts, when we have to cope with author's variants, different redactions, the fluidity and irregularity of non-classical languages, including Neo-Latin, and with printed texts or contemporary with the author. What remains valid in the Lachman method is the separation of recensio and emendatio, the calculus of errors, and the grouping of manuscripts according to their errors, at least for single redactions, and the task of amending the text on the basis of recta ratio and usus auctoris. I trust that even for the sloppy or obscure texts of our own time, there is at least an usus auctoris, if not a recta ratio. <laughs> the attempts to abandon the method altogether lead to dilettantism, 
and chaos and should be dismissed. For I have the impression that those who advocate this course do not know what they are talking about and are not familiar with the method and with the results which it is able to achieve. Thank you.